Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Jeff Rossica, the CEO of Avid Technology, a $1.2 billion market cap company that sells software and hardware for digital media production and management. For decades, Avid's products have been considered the gold standard in the entertainment industry. In fact, its media composer and Pro Tools products are used to make many of the movies you see and to create many of the songs you listen to. Jeff Rossica was Avid's chief sales officer and became the CEO in 2018. Since then, he has overseen the company's transition to a SaaS or software as a service business model. After a few fits and starts, the company has started to deliver on its margin and cash flow targets as the benefits of the business model transition are flowing through the financial statements. Given the company's recent success and my desire to better understand Avid's journey, I thought it would be a great time to catch up with Jeff and discuss what moving from perpetual licenses to a subscription software business really looks like internally how the company is approaching a world where people can create great content on their iPhones, whether or not having activist shareholders involved in the company can be helpful, and how to balance the different cultures within engineering and sales teams. Before we begin, just a few disclosures to note. First, CoStreet is a former Avid shareholder and was a 13D filer for a period of time. And most importantly, all of the music on this podcast was created and composed by our founder, Jeff Bronchick. And without any further ado, Here's my conversation with Avid Technology CEO, Jeff Rossica. As always, we will start this podcast at a pivotal moment in the company's history. In this case, the pivotal moment in Avid's history happens to coincide with a big moment in your career. So let's go back to February, 2018. At that point, you'd already worked in the broadcast and media industry for 30 years. You'd been at Avid for about five years and were the company's chief sales officer. So you get a phone call from the board saying your predecessor was abruptly leaving. To the best of your recollection, what were you thinking at that time? <laughs> That's a good, good question, Benjamin. Um, obviously, after I got past the uh, first kind of you know shock that that phone call had come in um, to me, is I really just quickly got to thinking about you know where to take the company. You know, when, when I first got the phone call, it was actually a phone call about stepping in on an interim basis, and so my I guess my first thoughts in that first uh, day was really, you know, how to how to really make sure I can get the company through kind of the shock and the and the surprise of what was be, going to be announced. And uh, really, at that point, I was thinking about, obviously, our, our employees, and our, our team members, our customers, our partners, our investors, looking at all the stakeholders to make sure, 
you know, I could think through kind of what needed to be uh, done and, and, and action. So I think, to be honest, that first few days was really about that. Now, as the discussions went on and I had a more serious discussion with the board, the board then subsequently later on before we went public uh, said, look, we'd like to announce you as the CEO. And so there was a, I would say that there was a, a just a very short few days there, three or four days that that uh, would probably felt like weeks and a lot was accomplished in those days, which you normally would accomplish in weeks. But I just quickly turned to, you know, once we got through the, the interim planning and kind of that, that first planning, it really was about, I think advantage I had is that knowing the industry, but also knowing Avid as much as I, I had known it from being here for basically, I think at that point I was here you know, five years, four and a half years, was I knew what worked, I knew what didn't work. And it was just quickly, you know, figuring out the plans uh, on how to take the company forward and you know, get it to a much more successful place than it, than it had been. And I'd love to hear a little bit about communications at that time, right? Like there's a lot of stakeholders. It's kind of a shock, shocking moment. How, you know, you know, and maybe even retrospect, how do you feel like you did communicate? So what was the strategy and how do you feel like you did communicate that um, when it happened? Yeah, it, well, I think obviously there was a lot of work put into the communication itself and the strategy, what we wanted to say and, and when we should say it and to who. And, and so obviously I don't want to take away from all the work that a lot of people did in our organization to get, you know, the communication messaging plans worked out. But for me, it's just knowing who I am. It was just be transparent, be honest, be forthright with what was going on. And as much as we could, obviously, you know, you can only tell certain audiences certain things. Um, it was really just coming forth with the information that I think people needed to hear. I thought of myself, if I was an employer, if I was a customer, if I was an investor, I already was an investor, I own shares at that point, you know, what would I want to hear? What would I need to hear uh, from the company? So it's really just sticking through all those things and then just being me and come out and be clear and concise and, and transparent and, and again, forthright with everything. I really like the idea of, of being authentic, being yourself, and then putting yourselves in the in the shoes of, of the people who would be hearing yeah. the information. You know, that I think that kind of empathy is really important for, for a CEO. And so getting to that is when you when you got the news that you were going to be interim and then and then full and then the CEO had that, you know, you were chief sales officer, which is a senior level position, mm -hmm. but had you ever thought about being a public company CEO? Is that like was that in your roadmap? Was that in your plan? It's like I, I could just see, you know, kind of being a little bit of a, a surprise and a shock. So where, how did, how were you thinking about, or how, how, how would you previously thought about being a CEO? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I wouldn't say that I necessarily sat back and said, gee, I want to be a public company CEO. Um, you know, it was more about my career trajectory and, and you know, what I had built up from an expertise. You know, even though I was chief commercial officer of the company, I was actually running both sales and marketing for the company. So I was taking on all the responsibility from brand and product positioning and, and messaging all the way through, obviously, marketing execution and sales, et cetera. But also was when I first came to Avid, I was in charge of all field operations. So I was actually an operations person taking care of all the customer facing field operations of the company when I first arrived. So and you look back at my career, I've, I've been, I spent a lot of years in M&A. So I've spent a lot of years, you know, developing my chops financially and developing my chops operationally. Um, but, you know, I, I can't, I do come from a marketing and sales background for most of my career, but I was general manager of other pretty significant companies beforehand, though not, not, not necessarily in this, on this, the top seat of a public company, but I was in public companies in very senior uh, general management and executive roles. So I built a lot of experience over time. Um, I knew I wanted to be the head of a, of a company. I wasn't necessarily at that point in 2018 saying, boy, next step, 
got to be a public company CEO. That probably happened a little bit faster than I would have expected, uh, at least if you asked me that the day before <laughs> the phone call came. Um, but I was ready. I, mean, I, think, I think the board probably saw that too, because they knew me from my previous roles and, and uh, you know, knew from their, their perspective that I was ready. Got it. That makes sense. And so this is a company that had been through some trials and tribulations. There'd been a messy accounting restatement that, um, you know, we, we, uh, we, I think that's when Coke Street became a shareholder right after the restatement. Um, and there's been some management turnover. I'm interested how you would describe the culture, you know, when you stepped into the CEO role and maybe talk a little bit about how it's evolved, you know, since you've been there for, for you know. Yeah, I think, you know, to, to think about it, um, you know, I think a culture, I mean, I was pretty honest and open when, when you know, I took the role. The, um, you know, the, the situation wasn't great. I, I would say that I wasn't a big fan of the culture. Even though I was in the organization in a senior role, I was at the time pretty unhappy with the way uh, we were organizing and the way we were, you know, managing our culture and, and the environment of, of, our, of our company. So I would say it was in a pretty bad position. I mean, if you look, look at external metrics like Glassdoor or other things that are out there, obviously it was, I would say, uh, dismal. Uh, metrics in, for the company. For me, I think that was one of the, there's a lot of things I had to jump on, but culture was an important one because if you don't have the people, we're not going to get anywhere, right? It's, you know, a company is a collection of a lot of things, but if you don't have the people, you, you've got zero. And so it really was making sure that I got the organization on a better plane quickly uh, from a cultural standpoint. And um, we had to make a lot of changes very fast to, to get that culture and to get the environment to where it needed to be. I think it's crucial. I mean, it's it's it was a crucial part of of getting the company on the right footing in the early days. Well, I mean, this is a this is a people business in a lot of ways, right? You have engineers and you have salespeople. There's a lot. It's a very people heavy business. Yeah. Um. So let's let's dive a little bit into the business. Mm-hmm. So, Avid, you know, as long as as I follow this company, has been known as an industry leader in the audio and video software world. Um. And but it's really, I think, when it's it's really at least in, 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 in my understanding, you know, historically has been really focused on the professional users. So in a new world where anyone can take videos on their iPhone and edit them using free software, how has Avid tried to pivot to cater to what's called the prosumer or maybe, maybe even amateur users? That's a good question. Um, we, look, the way I would talk about Avid is that, you know, look, we're not trying to be the top brand in, in prosumer or consumer space. And what reason I say that is that we're not necessarily looking for the hobbyist or the occasional kind of music creator or someone who wants to, as always joke and say cat videos on YouTube and YouTube's gone a lot further than cat videos originally, but it, it's, we're really about serious media creators. Now that can be someone who's aspiring. That can be someone who's just starting out. That can be someone who is, you know, making music from their basement or their garage. Um, but it's people who are serious about their craft, serious about, you know, wanting to make music or, or making a, a video or, or a tomorrow's feature film. And so we are focused on serious media creators, whether those are individuals or their companies that are in the business of making media. Uh, but it's not just your typical Disney's or, or Netflix or people like that. This is even corporations and, and um, government institutions. And it's anybody who's, re- or again, or individuals who are making music at home. It really is for us, we, we focus on people where this is a serious craft that they're trying to pursue, again, whether it's for personal reasons or, or for business reasons. And so if you ask a question about how do we evolve, I think what's really evolving 
is how people do that. Even though, yes, it's very, look, it's the great thing about communications tools is that they really are available to anybody. I mean, if you have a, an iPhone and you've downloaded the, you know, the free editing software on, on the iPhone you can get from Apple, you've got with that camera that's on that phone and, and some of the tools, you know, you can make amazing videos and, and shoot amazing things. And with not very much more, you can be making music um, on off of just simply an iPhone or a, or a, iPad or, or Android device, whatever. But I think that that um, what really has changed is how people do that. I think what these, what this democratization or this kind of making it almost ubiquitous, anybody can do it, is it's also changed the way people do make music or the way they make videos or the way they make television or, or film content. Um, there's been a, a lot of change the way next-gen creators create their content. And so for us, the way we adapt is making sure our tools evolve and that the way that we evolve our company, the way people want to create content. That doesn't mean that, again, we're trying to be a consumer company. That's not our space. That's not our expertise. It really is about, you know, helping create professional tools for, for serious media creators. And getting to that, just one more question about that is, I think there's a long history of companies, especially in te technology, that have been kind of the high-end solution. And there have been some startups and ankle biters at the beginning that mm -hmm. if you just let them get bigger and bigger, yeah. they creep up. And all of a sudden, you know, you have... All of a sudden you have a real competitor. How do you how do you think about that? I mean, how do you think about, you know, what's like almost like the, the innovator's dilemma? And, and and do you do you try to self-cannibalize a little bit? Do you not try to do that? I mean, it's it's I don't know if there's a perfect answer, but I'd love to hear how you guys are thinking about it. Yeah, there's no perfect answer, but how I think about it and how we think about it is, you know, don't let the, the innovator's dilemma set in. You've and because it can and it will, and I've seen it happening even inside of Avid. Um, you've got to wake up. I mean, people ask me what, what keeps me up at night. Well, competitors are what keeps me up at night, not big competitors. I don't worry about Adobe every day. I, I worry about those little, as you call them, ankle biters, the, the people who are getting innovative and have got a small team innovating. Um, you have to, you have to have a kind of a, a fear of that. And you've got to wake up every day and everybody in your organization has to wake up every day fearing what's next or who's going to come next or, or what customer requirements are going to change. I mean, the, the requirements too around our customers have changed drastically in the last few years and they've really accelerated during the pandemic. So making sure that you're listening to your customer base and making sure that you're keeping a close eye on competition and, and innovate. And I think it, you said it, you have to be willing to cannibalize your own. It's not that you want to throw it out the door, but if you have a, a strong revenue stream uh, that's on a, let's say, more of a legacy product like we have, have had those for years, you've got to be willing to innovate those. You've got to be willing to, to take a hit on the revenue line of a product that's been here a long time to build for the future. And, and now you, you got to do that carefully. You got to do it with intelligence and, and with timing. But I don't think you, you should be afraid of, of going after, as I say, cannibalize your own young or, or you know, create <laughs> new young things that are going to replace the older things. And now a quick word about our sponsor. Before we started using the Tegas platform in 2017, CoStreet rarely used expert networks to find high value sources to help us better understand the companies we follow. The competitors' offerings were expensive and limited. Tegas changed that dynamic through their innovative business model, allowing firms like ours with a more limited research budget to conduct expert calls at a fraction of the price of others. Tegas then records, transcribes, anonymizes, and posts the transcript to their platform for subscribers to learn from. Every new Tegas customer makes the platform stronger through deeper and richer transcripts, and I've personally seen the growth over the past four years. The Tegas network of experts and platform of previous calls has made the service an indispensable part of our investment process. In fact, 
we now use the word Tegas as a verb. If you haven't tried Tegas before, I highly recommend going to tegas.co for a free trial and to start Tegasing your research. So you talk about your customers' needs changing. Um, mm. I think it's a good segue to my question about, um, you know, the, the company, a little more on the company's culture. So, you know, I've, we followed this company for a number of years. And I think especially before you became CEO, it always struck us that the engineers called the shots. So how do you balance the desires of those engineers who want to solve every potential customer need that could ever come up with, you know, and they want to build basically an aircraft carrier with the reality that maybe the salespeople and your finance team really only want the engineers to build a tugboat, something that does the job, but doesn't, isn't, you know, overwhelming and too expensive. How do you, how have you found a way to balance that? It's hard, but I think you have to, I think a couple of things for me is that you've got to, I mean, first of all, the engineering and the innovators are important. I mean, you're never going to innovate and create new things. It's, sometimes it is about, you know, don't build a, an aircraft carrier when a tugboat or maybe a frigate or a, you know, different class of ship will, will do. Um, you always have to be challenging people for that. And so I think that you know, that comes from making sure that you put equal weight or equal parts on not just the views of, of your innovators and your engineering, but, you know, what do the customers think? What does the market think? And, and what's the opportunity? You, gotta, you have to always make sure that you, I think for me, I make sure everybody's nose is always pointed on the opportunity. Even if it's something very innovative, very new, you got to be solving something, right? You can't, innovation for innovation's sake is not important. Innovation that's going to solve a problem for a customer or going to enable an opportunity for a customer, that's what's important. And if you can make that connection right, if you can make the best connections that are out there, you're going to get rewarded uh, from your customers, from your, from all your stakeholders, including your investors. So I think it's important that you keep that in line. And one of the ways we've done that is I've implemented much more business planning, much more strict ways that you look at, you know, are we going to spend R&D dollar here and R&D dollar there and R&D dollar over there? The other thing though, is that you've, you've got to create some healthy tension. You need the you need the, the marketing people and the sales people and the product people and the technology people there to be a, um, not, not, a, not a tension that creates a problem, but healthy tension that, that you want voices at the table to, dis, to discuss and potentially disagree so that you can get to a better place in the end. And I, I think sometimes in the planning process, especially in how you fund innovation in R&D, that's important. That's not to say you shouldn't, car every company that's in tech should carve off a certain amount of dollars for pure innovation, for pure, you know, idea generation uh, kinds of things. It was really interesting for me to hear you say that, that your customers' needs have changed and that was accelerated during the pandemic. I would love to hear a little more about that um, and what, you know, what you're doing to evolve to serve those needs even better. It's a good question. You know, a lot of people before the pandemic came, you had technology. You have technologies like cloud, right? Cloud enables SaaS business models, and and where you don't have to buy the hardware, and you're basically renting the hardware and renting the software. Um, and that's been there a long time in a lot of industries. But for us in our industry, that was there, and that was starting to to really mature. But I think what we saw is that people were before the pandemic. People cared about you know how to you know more and more. We're moving to more of a gig economy where you've got really kind of the gig workers. Uh, contributing more and more. They've always been a part of our industry, but you saw it really even grow in their, their role in the industry. So the, you know, the role of freelancers was important and that's been growing. But then the view of, gee, well, it's not just freelancers. I don't want to necessarily work with a person in Los Angeles or in New York or in London, wherever I am. I'm in London. I want to work with somebody in South Africa or I want to work with somebody in Singapore. How do you do that? 
or maybe they're maybe I'm in London, but they're in Cambridge. And I don't want them necessarily to have to live in London. People were looking at that issue, I think, in general on how to be more flexible and work more remotely and, and, and more hybrid. I think what the pandemic did is it made people who were maybe apprehensive or maybe a little concerned and risk averse, not really pushing on that possibility too hard. What the pandemic did literally with almost a, a, a light switch is everybody had to be working from home within days, hours, days, weeks. And so it made people try it. It maybe, you know, and try to degrees they weren't comfortable trying it before. And I think what people realized is it worked. You know, we, we got it. We got that. We still made that song. We still got that content, you know, uh, you know, on Netflix, on, on, on the subscriber uh, channel. We got it on the air. Um, so I think that it taught people some lessons about um, maybe it taught them lessons, but allowed them to try new things quickly. And it got they got comfortable, I think, a lot less faster than if they would have done it, you know, on their own pace. And so, you know, so working, working remotely, working, what we call work from anywhere. It's, I want to be able to work from anywhere, work with anyone and work on any content. And I want it to deploy it any way I'd like, whether it's on-prem, in the cloud, hybrid, whatever. Um, I think that is now a permanent fixture to our industry for sure. And, and you mentioned in there, the idea of having a subscription business yeah. And I mean, I think the acronym SaaS or software as a service is now so ubiquitous that even other industries are starting to steal that concept. Um, but our sense is that a lot of investors underestimate the heavy lifting that goes into transforming a company um, from one that sells perpetual software licenses to one that generates recurring subscription revenue. It's not like you just turn a switch. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that journey and how you know both your sales and engineering teams have had to adapt as you've gone along this the SaaS journey. It's a it's a big journey. I'd say the good news is that Avid is uh, well into the journey now, but we're still in the early days of the journey ourselves. It, it it's uh, it's been a very successful part of our business. It has helped us transform the the financial stability of the company and and the trajectory of the company financially. Um, but it's a it's a big piece of work. It, and again, it's a piece of work that we're only you know. I'd say we're probably a quarter of the way in. We've got a long way to go and a lot of opportunity for our company going forward. But it's a transformation at all levels. It's a, it's a transformation of your tech stack. It's a transformation of your, of your business models. It's a transformation of your go-to-market. Uh, it's a transformation of your financial profile because, you know, there's a famous J-curve or different, different terms for it. You know, you go through a, you have to go through a period of change when you're going from an upfront model to a on-demand model or a pay-as-you-go model. Um, and you've got to get customers through the through the journey and their their perspective on how they want to buy things and deploy things. You got to get investors through the journey because you know the the, the financial journey is going to be different than maybe they expected looking backwards. Um, but it's a valuable journey. It's something that in the end is a win win for everybody. We found that it becomes a win for our customers because they get to more flexibility in how they buy and how they deploy and what commercial models that that, that, that they uh, utilize. It's a win for the company, obviously, because it's a recurring model. It's a more stable recurring model that's more profitable for the company. Um, and it's obviously a big win for the investors because as the company gets more towards the recurring revenue and, and less on the perpetual or the one-time kind of purchase model, it's a real benefit to the company's financials. And again, and obviously the company's valuation, how the market perceives the value of the company in that regard. One thing you you mentioned in the answer to a prior question was, you know, when I was talking about ankle biters, you, you were talking about being concerned about that smaller, the smaller competitors. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that we haven't really seen from Avid is in your tenure, 
is acquisitions. Um, was that, you know, were you, was that an, an outcome of the, you know, the balance sheet you inherited or was there a st- specific strategy that said, we really need to focus on, on internal R&D, we need to focus on our SaaS transition rather than on acquisitions? Maybe, maybe talk a little bit about that. I can. And because I spent a lot of years in M&A, I think people expected me to be on a buying spree the moment I took over as CEO. Um, no, look, I, I think that acquisitions are important of any, any tech company's growth journey and, and as you're evolving and, and you know, developing your, your business. When I took over as CEO, there was, you know, the way I would put it is that we had to clean up our own house before we started looking at, you know, acquiring other houses and, and bringing them into the fold of the neighborhood. Um, it really was about getting the fundamentals right for this company. It was about, you know, I really saw really uh, now the pandemic obviously got in the way here and we had to navigate our way through a pandemic. But I, at that time, if you asked me in 2018, I would have said there's, I got to spend at least a couple of years focused on the culture and no, no particular order, but the culture, the organization, the business model, uh, the financials of the company, the, the product roadmap, the capital structure. I mean, there was just a lot to get right about this company and making sure that we were really building a, a strong, stable, financially profitable, cash-generating company um, that could fund its way there. That wasn't just about, you know, oh, any company can find a way to take on more debt. For us, it was about getting the capital structure cleaned up and getting things in a much stronger place. You know, if you look at our own company from where we were and the debt structure we had when I took over as CEO to where we are today, you know, it's a, it's night and day uh, from that standpoint. Even our financials. I mean, we were. I think we were break even as a cash flow standpoint. I think maybe we generated one million dollars cash flow for the first time in many years that I was at Avid before taking over CEO. Um, now we're you know on, on a great trajectory of of generating positive cash flow ever since then. And and you notice we've been generating generating cash flow every year and more and more, both as an absolute number but also as a percent of the EBITDA. And so for me, it was really, and then you know, the pandemic came and it obviously got us focused on you know, getting the company through the pandemic and all that's gone well. So I think, you know, first was getting a very strong company that we could, that we could, you know, get in a very good place. Then I think acquisitions can be in, like, and I've said on our investor day recently, will be a part of the mix. Um, you know, it, it, we're going to always continue to invest R&D internally in the things that we think we can innovate around that we can do best. But there are areas where, you know, technology acquisitions, and I'm not a big believer in big transformative M&A, but definitely technology acquisitions, tuck-ins of companies smaller than Avid that they bring the right technology or the right go-to-market or, or all the above, that it can help accelerate our roadmap or fill gaps that we think we have as a company that align to our strategy. So, look, you know, we'll, we'll look at everything, but we'll always do things with an eye towards how we're creating long-term value creation. That's most important. And I, I think, you know, the market has started to appreciate, you know, the cash flow profile change of this company and the things that you've done to fix the balance sheet. And so, you know, when the stock traded at $4, you know, you didn't really have a currency that you could use in m and I'm, 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 I would argue now that you have more of a currency. How would you think about, you know, future deals in terms of using a currency versus cash? Like, because this would be the first acquisition, in, you know, as CEO. So I'm interested in, in like what philosophically, in terms of your own North Star, how would you think about using the, the stock as a currency? Yeah, I think, well, you know, I don't know if I'd say there's a single North Star. I think there's a single principle in, in play, which is, you know, capital allocation. What do we do with our capital? Um, it, it's going to go towards the things that we think are going to build the right long-term shareholder uh, profile and that we're going to create value for our shareholders. 
Um, it, it, I think Ken, Ken, our CFO, and I probably consistently said the same thing. It's, oh, if you look over, over the next few years and how we use the cash we're generating, it's going to be a mix. Obviously, we're going to keep an eye on our debt structure, and, and but at today's interest rates and our current debt structure company, we've got a very, very uh, cost-effective debt structure uh, with our current uh, um, lending uh, organization or our lending structure. Um, I, I think that you know we're going to look at obviously with you know all eyes on share repurchase, refinance, or or, or you know debt reduction and M and A, and and we'll make combinations of I'm sure moves over time that are in the best interest of our of our shareholders. But you know all I'm looking keeping my eye on is you know where we're taking the, and I say long term, it, it's medium to long term. You know where we're taking medium to long term the company and what's going to best uh, drive that shareholder value. Look, I, it, in the end, my view is pretty simple. You, if, you, if you really do the right things to make your customers happy and want them to spend money with you, and if you keep an eye on driving value of your shareholders, everything takes care of itself beyond that. And you, you got to wake up every day. I, I worry about, I also, of course, worry about our culture and our team. But for me, it's equal part looking at making sure that how are we driving value for our shareholders, whose money it is that we're that we're given to, to, to manage our business. Um, it's how we're going to drive, you know, value for our customers so that they're going to want to keep spending more and more with us and, 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 or more customers that don't buy from us today are going to want to buy from us in the future and how we really have a motivated, energized and, and focused team. And that's probably the three most important parts of my job. On the topic of shareholders, um, Avid has had the distinct pleasure of having multiple activist shareholders over a period of time. In fact, um, for full disclosure, for a while, Cove Street was a 13D filer on Avid. So my guess is, especially as a new CEO, this is not an ideal situation. Um, but I'm, I'm interested if you, you know, especially thinking back in hindsight, if you could point to some areas where input from, from certain shareholders has been helpful over time. It's a good question. Look, I, it's funny that, you know, I don't think we've necessarily, I, I, at least not when I've been an avid, I, we've never had to deal with a, a what I'd say is a, an activist that was in a real negative stance. Like, I think even your organization, I know Jeff, I've known Jeff a long time since I've been an avid. And, you know, uh, even though um, activists like Cove Street, or now we have Impactive in with, with that team, obviously, they've, they're here to, to, to make clear what, what the objectives are they want to achieve. But I think that, you know, look, I think the input that Co when I came, became CEO, one of the first people I met with was the Coast Street team and, and talked about their input from a shareholder perspective. I think shareholders give a lot of great value. And, and you know, again, sometimes they're often very tough discussions, but I think that they bring a lot of perspectives, not only of themselves and, and what they're looking at, but, you know, they bring a collective view of the market. And so I think, you know, I always engage heavily, not just passively with shareholders, but actively with shareholders. And, and that includes now we have a, what's I guess considered actively a, a, an activist firm uh, with Impactive. But as an example, they're on our board, uh, Christian Asmar is on our board. And you know they, they've always positioned themselves as constructivists. That's one of the things they said to us when they first came on. And that's exactly how I see them and how they, how they work with us. They don't hold anything back. They're very open. They're very upfront. They're very clear about the things that they think they can uh, add value on, but also opinions that they have about the business. And that's proven to be very valuable to us um, in, in, from, from a company strategy and financial strategy to an investor strategy. So I, I think, look, I, I listen carefully to everybody. It, it's, it's, I don't want to just hear from people that love us and love me and love what we're doing. I want to hear from people that have different perspectives and, 
new views and new ideas. It's the only way we're going to keep improving. If there's nothing to fix or nothing to change, I'm not sure why I'm in the job. My job is to fix things and, and keep improving things, get on the right trajectory. Well, I think the fact that you were willing to appear on the podcast shows that, um, you know, we have Cope Street and Avid have maintained a, a very constructive yeah. and productive relationship over the years. You also, you know, you mentioned the board. I mean, you have a very interesting board. Um, Viacom CBS CEO um, Bob Backish is on the board and has been on for years. I'm interested, you know, how you interface with the board, you know, and what, you know, what someone like Bob, you know, being on your board can, can bring to a company like Avid. Yeah, it's a good question. It's not just Bob. I think if you look at the makeup of our entire board, um, you've got different types and different profiles of our board. But let me first go back to the, I think the middle of your question, which is, you know, how do I see the board as, as you know, valuable to, to the company and to the management? <clears throat> I mean, first and foremost, the board has a responsibility of governance and, and shareholder representation. So that obviously is important and they've got to take a, an independent uh, stance and role with that. But I think what's great about, I think, our board and the way I like to work with the board is that there are also people who have extreme experience and and networks and information and ideas that are valuable. And I think that I've always treated uh, our board and they, they treat me as, as collaborators in that regard. Again, they, they first and foremost have to do their governance and their shareholder representation. But, you know, the goal should be the same. We should be trying to drive value uh, for the company. And so being able to leverage them uh, in the way that I can and I do um, is, is quite good. So we spend a lot of time with our board, not just in, in you know, obviously formal board meetings, but, you know, they volunteer a lot to, to give advice, counsel, information, et cetera. And um, so people like Bob or John Wallace, who give us really that operator's view, and, you know, these are both people who've been very experienced in the media industry. And, you know, they, they allow me to really ask interesting, tough questions around, around you know, what, how media companies think and, and how we should be thinking. And, and also just as, as very senior managers, you know, they've got a lot of experience in what worked, what didn't work and what, what succeeded and what failed. So I think getting their perspective is important. We also have a lot of strong uh, industry experience besides Bob and, and, uh, and uh, John. We've also got Elizabeth uh, Daly, who she's been on the board quite a while too, but she's the Dean of the USC Film School. Um, and you know, having her perspective on Hollywood and, and education and, and her and et cetera. Um, Paula, who is someone that is really more of a governance background, she's a lawyer by trade, but she's also a musician. And now in this stage in her life, she's making music. And that it's it's interesting to have that perspective sitting on the board. Um, and uh, and that's a that's a value. And we've got very strong financials. I talked about Christian Asmar, but also you know, Dan Silvers or, or our, our chairman of the board, Peter Wesley, or more operator financial people like Nancy Hawthorne, they bring a financial perspective and there's real value in that as, as we've been looking at the capital, as, as you can both my, not just myself, but Ken and, and, and Witt, who's in our corporate development and IR, you know, as we've been looking at capital structure and looking at just how we're taking the, the company forward, um, that, that counsel and that, that feedback and that information and networks that they have has been very beneficial to the company. So I hope the board, if you ask them, would say that, yes, the management team and, and Jeff specifically is very open and, and very collaborative with the board because I think there's such great expertise there that I, I would uh, I would be crazy not to be tapping that um, for the benefit of the company. You mentioned in that response that having Bob on the on the board gives you a sense of what the big media companies are thinking. I mean, those guys typically are your largest customers. And when you have customers that are, that are that big, I think they can be very demanding um, mm -hmm. and push hard on things like pricing and asking you to, you know, change orders that they don't pay for and stuff like that. 
So as an organization, especially as one is established as Avid, how do you make sure not to jump when someone like NBC or Viacom says jump and, and make sure that you're getting paid fairly for your products and services and get a fair margin for, for what you're offering? Well, I think, you know, it's definitely a journey this company's been on. I think if you go back many, many years, you you could easily criticize the company because maybe we were doing too much for, for too few and uh, and not looking at the wider market. <clears throat> but I think there's a couple of differences. One is that we've gotten very, again, we, we do, you got to listen carefully to these customers. And I think one of the things if you do, if you, if you listen carefully and you work collaboratively, you don't have to get forced in a corner to only do it their way. I think you just have to kind of, be willing to have those discussions and, and have a longer discussion with them to, to get to a better place. That said, there are times when you're asked to do very custom things and you know we're now a company that says no. If it doesn't meet the needs of the wider market and or we can't align it to the needs of the wider market, then we're not really interested in doing it as a company. Third thing I would say though, is that I, I think the difference today is that none of those companies, rep- even though they're very important and they're, we, we, we think of them as very critical customers for us, None of them represent anywhere near 2% uh, of the, or, or very few represent even close to 2% of, of the company's overall revenue. And so it's not quite, we're not quite in the same position we were before. I think our market today is very evenly spread between the big enterprises, kind of the small and medium-sized businesses and, and the individual, individual creative professionals. So I think we're, we're, a, we're better, better evenly footed uh, than we probably were if you go back several years. You talk about that customer diversification. Um, I remember your predecessor doing a big deal in China. Um, what what does international mean for you guys now? Is that you know is, is that a big focus? You know, as as you talked about fixing the company, was it more of a domestic focus, or and now you can more focus on on international? Or you know, how are you looking at that as well? It's a good question. No, it was not a, a domestic focus. It was a global focus. I mean, when we looked at getting the company profitable, there was a lot I focused on. One is, uh, you know, looking at the organization, bringing the right people in and the right leadership roles. They're willing to make the right decisions. It's too easy for people to get emotional about their decisions and not just get very practical and financial driven in their in their decisions. Like really, for me, it's you've got to be, you know, financial and market driven. If you're not equally looking at both the financial reasons you're doing something and the market reasons you're doing something. If you lose sight of those, you're losing sight of, of the business. But I think getting people very focused, getting the right organization in, the right leadership in, getting the right culture in, getting very a lot of rigor around the business planning and, and, and target setting and how you drive the organization. But it also was looking at everything with, with an unemotional view, whether it was geographic markets, whether it was product areas, um, it didn't matter. We, we looked at everything to say, where are we making money? Where are we not? And, and how can we change that profile to make sure we are making money in everything that we're in? And so it really was taking a very unemotional, um, even though I'm a, you know, someone who's been in the company a while and, I, and I'm someone that has been in the industry a long time, uh, that doesn't mean I love everything about the industry. I love everything about Avid. It was really you know, making sure that we looked at things uh, very unemotionally and, and, and with, a practic- with an eye on practicality on what, what the future was. And also, we got rid of things that were profitable, but we're not going to carry us forward. Things that just were not going to grow and not going to take us to where we want to go. So it really was you know, making sure we got focused as a company. Got it. That makes sense. So, you know, it's it's interesting, uh, you know, I think people think of, you know, if you're near a CEO, um, you know, problems are, are, are 
negative things are harder to deal with, but sometimes success can be hard to deal with. So mm -hmm. Abbott stock has had a remarkable run over the last 12 months, rising from under $10 to the high 20s now. You know, as I said, sometimes success can be just as hard as, as dealing with failures. How does your management team and the board think about dealing with rising expectations from your various stakeholders? What, you know, how do you communicate with people about how to, how to handle that? It's a good question. But first of all, I'd say that you would assume that the markets and uh, other views have a, uh, a higher aspiration than we do. First of all, we have very high aspirations of ourselves and where we want to take the business. And so probably nobody's got a higher aspiration than myself as to where we need to take the company, where we can't take the company. Um, so it's, it's more keeping myself in check, you know, keep, keeping myself an eye on myself is to not get out over my skis and to make sure that we're, you know, progressing in the, in the right steps to get to where we want to go. Um, but I think you're right, is that you got to be careful that what I would say is, is don't let success get to your head. Um, I'm happy to see, you know, where we've progressed over the last year, but you can't look at the short-term metrics. You've got to look at, you know, where's the long-term game? Where are we getting to? What's the trajectory we're on? And, and, and how are we doing against that, against that plan? So, well, it's great to see the market react and that's, that's good to see. Um, you know, we're, we're not even near where I want to take the company and where I think we can take this company. So how do you think about incentivizing people to achieve those stretch goals? Um, what is it? Do you have to change your compensation structure? Are you happy with it? Or is it more just about like setting stretch, you know, putting a, some kind of stretch goal in people's compensation? How, how have you thought about doing that? Yeah, well, we do. Everything always has a stretch, whether they're sales quotas or there are you know, targets for our executive team. Uh, everything has a built-in stretch. I, I believe in a couple of basic things. Number one is wherever you can get everyone aligned to the same thing so that nobody's misaligned to what we are. So <clears throat> interesting, I'll tell you that, that everybody in the company who is a full-time employee that is eligible for a corporate bonus, everybody has some, whether it's five or 10% of their pay or 50% of their pay, they are, they are on a corporate bonus. Um, I'll put salespeople aside for a moment, but other than the salespeople, everybody else is on a corporate bonus and everyone's focused on the same things. Everyone's focused around strategic revenue, everyone's focused around EBITDA, and everyone's focused on free cash flow. And so whether you are my assistant or you're the CEO and everybody in between, everybody, every one of us gets clearly what we're trying to do and, and what metrics we're being judged on. And, and those are the metrics, if, if you stay sound familiar, that our, that our you know, investors are going to judge us on, at least from a, from a company performance standpoint. Um, obviously, the equity component for a lot of people is important too, to make sure they're aligned to how we drive shareholder value. Um, but it's also making sure that we keep it moving, that we keep evolving those metrics, that we keep obviously raising the bar on ourselves as to where we want to go. But also over time, we'll evolve those metrics to make sure that we're focused on the right things as we, you know, as the company's journey unfolds, how do we keep evolving those metrics and, and what we focus people on. But making sure everybody wakes up as much as you can. Again, I put the salespeople aside for a moment. I'll talk about that next. Um, but you want the company collectively looking at, um, you know, where we're taking the organization. Even sales management has an element of their bonus that's on the corporate bonus. And so they're all tied to, to making sure we're delivering on this. Now, on the sales side, people who are, you know, quota-based, um, you know, that's an evolving thing almost every year. As you said earlier, you asked me the question around moving to a SaaS business or a subscriber business. That journey does require you to continue to change and evolve um, how you compensate people. And so, you know, short term kind of, you know, get a deal in the door and win it, you know, that compensation is less now than if you sign a multi-year long-term agreement with a subscription base to it. 
and, and everything in between. And we even start de-emphasizing commission rates on certain products and doubling down commission rates on others. So I think you have to use, I think that the target setting and, and compensation have to be well aligned to where you're trying to take the company. And you always got to tweak it every year and move it on the path that you're on to where you need to go. It's important. You talk about getting all the employees aligned. And when I hear that, I think about Avid Connect, which is yeah. the event where you gather all the Avid employees and users together, and you often make announcements about new products and services. But given the world we live in today and how much we've all been impacted by COVID, how are you thinking about the future of Avid Connect and then even large industries trade shows like NAB? Are those still a core part of the Avid sales and marketing strategy? That's a good question. I've been asked that a lot, especially in the industry. I'm asked that. And I'm one of the people that took a pretty hard stance that even in 2021, we were not going to go to major trade shows. In fact, I, I said it was premature. It was months ago, I said it's premature for us to be talking about gathering tens of thousands of people uh, together in a, in a hall and jamming them together and thinking that everything's going to be okay. and It doesn't become a super spreader event. Uh, well, I guess, you know, my, my, my view of that a few months ago hasn't changed both for me, but probably for a lot of people, because, you know, as you see, the situation with the pandemic isn't necessarily a straight line to, uh, to recovery. Um, but I think that what happened during COVID, I remember I talked up earlier about how our customers have learned a lot around how they're going to do business. We've learned a lot as an industry about how we're going to do business. You know, if I look at everything from how salespeople and even management crisscross the world getting deals done or how we went to these big trade shows, which I know you guys have been to from, from Cove Street, um, they were outsized part of the investment we made in sales and marketing costs. Now, I, I'm not going to say that they're going to become zero, but I think the mix is going to change a lot because we learned a couple of important things during uh, COVID. One is that content marketing and digital marketing and virtual type of events can be very effective and they can, and they're very efficient and they're uh, very cost effective. And so I think that forevermore, I would say, and I say this as one of the CEOs of one of the bigger brands in our industry, um, this has permanently changed our industry. I don't believe big trade shows, even things like Avid Connect are ever going to be the same. Um, we've learned how to, and I think it's a good thing because I think that even Avid Connect, you guys have been to our event. This is our big annual customer gathering. Um, and that's been very successful, but it's still only 1500 people of very select customers. And if we really want to get to a wider market, we need to get to 10,000 customers or 20,000 or hundred thousand people or a million people, depending on the market that we're in. How do we get to them more efficiently? Because they can't all buy tickets and fly to Las Vegas and spend five days of their life in Las Vegas. And so I think we've learned a lot. We've worked with our, the, the Avid Connect event is actually an event we do together with the Avid Customer Association, which is an independent organization that we sponsor and that we help um, uh, administer. But it, it's an independent group of customers that, that have their own board and their own committees. We work tightly with that organization. I think over the course of COVID, we've learned how to do more virtual events, how to do more uh, digital events with them, and how to engage with our community wider than just this big, glorious event once a year in Las Vegas. Um, now, again, I don't. I, I think what we're going to see is, I think even, I'm not saying anything out of school, I think our ACA board uh, has, a, sorry, Avid Customer Association board has said that they'd rather not do one big event a year. They'd rather do, when we do face-to-face -face events, they'd rather do smaller, more intimate gatherings around the world. In, in London, in Los Angeles, in Singapore, in, you know, name your, name your big city around the world. They'd rather have more intimate, which are, by the way, lower cost and, and more efficient events 
but you can get to way more people around the world face-to-face. -face. But we're also doing a lot more virtual, a lot more digital. Um, and that's, again, that's taught us to do things differently. And so I think, you know, we'll never go back. So it will, the pendulum will swing a little bit, but I think we'll never go back anywhere near the way it was before. That's a really interesting perspective. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm interested, you know, you were kind of thrust into the CEO position. And my guess is you had to learn a lot about things on the fly, maybe some technology stuff that you might have not have been involved in. I'd love to hear about any, you know, any mistakes that you made early on and, and what you learned from them, anything that you would be willing to share, you know, with, with, with humility about, you know, yeah. the, your learning process. I, I make mistakes every day of my life as a CEO. So some, hopefully most of them are very small ones. Um, but, you know, like you, you've got to make, you've got to, you got to fail and you got to fail fast. I mean, any, any fast moving technology company will say that. Um, I, I think that, you know, I wouldn't necessarily put my hand on one thing. I think it's just, Lessons learned along the way. I, I think you learn you learn small and, and sometimes big uh, lessons that you have to adjust your approach or adjust your thinking or adjust your um, decision making uh, as a as both a CEO but also as a as a leadership team. And so I think that I say the biggest thing I've learned. I've always been someone who felt like you can rip a bandaid and move faster. I've never felt like you can break anything. Um, it, it, if, if it's a good, solid company with a good underpinning and a good foundation, you can change fast. It, it really won't blow up. It really will. It will take it. It will move on. I think the only thing I would say that I probably learned more of is I was right and I could do it even faster. And I think there's things that I could have moved faster on. I could have changed faster that, you know, you, even though I'm a believer that you can, you can quote unquote, rip the bandaid and, and move forward and change and, and, and fix things, um, I, I think that even I will regulate myself a little bit to be, oh, am I, you know, am I going too fast? Am I, am I ripping too much there? Um, I think I've convinced myself through all of this, you know, jumping into this role, changing the company as fast as I, and I say, I, I'm the CEO. A, a large team of people have been changing this company over the past three years. Um, but I think that I've learned as a CEO that we can change even faster, that we can attack more. Now, with some humility, I'd say the other thing I've learned is that you can't change everything at once that, that, you know, my appetite for change sometimes is we can do a lot more than we can actually handle as an organization. And so it's, you know, probably understanding how much you can do when, or, or how to prioritize or face things uh, because I'm someone too, who can just say, you know, let's change all that. And, and sometimes the organization that can, that can um, weight down an organization, you can change too much too fast. So it's interesting. You have to learn to regulate and, and more prioritize and face things, but also you got to be willing you know, you, I, I think what I've learned across my whole career is that you never look back. And, and I can't think of a time where I look back and say, oh, I shouldn't have made that change or I shouldn't have, have gone forward. What you really kind of rethink is the things you didn't change, the things that you could have changed faster or you could have, you know, you knew something was wrong and you could have probably made a, a faster move in that regard. I, I regret if I regret, I'm not a person who regrets things, but if I had to say I regretted something, I always regret things I didn't do. Not, not regret things I, I do do. So it's always about me making sure to keep moving uh, as fast and with as much focus as the organization can handle is maybe the way to say it. And, and getting to that a little more specifically, I think you know, you're in the technology industry, your customers' needs are changing. How do you, how do you center an organization around not just responding to what the customer needs right now, today, what they're demanding of you, 
and look three to five years out? Like, how do you incentivize people to look around the corner? Um, because it just seems like, you know, you, you have a hard enough job as it is day to day. Like, how do you how do you get people to step away from that and, and look three to five years out? It's it's a it's a transition you have to go through. I think you have to do it at the right time. I think, look, you know, when I started as CEO, um, I felt like the whole organization was way too short-sighted. They were looking like almost in the quarter and that's it. Um, so my first thing was to get people to look out a bit. And, you know, I, I kind of think of it as trifocals um, is, you know, you've got, you've got, you know, close up and medium range and, and long range you have to look at. So over time, it was just getting people to open their aperture and, and keep an eye on all three. Because I think that if you're going to be most successful, you have to have a view on all three. You cannot just focus on the long term. You cannot ignore the short term. And quite conversely, you can't just fix the short term and not look at where you're going long term. Um, and of course, everything in between. You've got to keep an eye on all of it. So it's just over time, I think it was just opening the aperture more and more to the organization uh, to, to think short, medium and long term in everything that we do. Got I think it. people. I think people want to look look long term. I find that you, you you find that the thing that I find troubling or or challenging with people is you've got long term thinkers and you got short term thinkers. You really got to get people. You need everybody doing all. You you need people to keep. I'm not talking about people who are transacting day to day, but I mean as people are thinking about where to take the business, they always got to keep a, a sight on on all three horizons, if I can call it that. That sounds like if you could infuse that into the company and, and have it be lasting, that, that sounds like it'd be a great legacy. Mm -hmm. What, you know, as you think about, I'm not, I'm not trying to kick you out of the seat right now, but if, if I had to pin you down, like what, you know, you inherited a, a, a company that, as you said, had cultural issues, had had accounting issues, had had management turnover. What, you know, what would you like that lasting legacy to be if you look back, you know, 10 years from now about what, what you left at Avid? That's a good question. I mean, look, fundamentally, I want to leave something much better than I took it over. I mean, I think if fundamentally people can say, no matter who the stakeholder is, whether you, let's, you know, talk about investor, right? Obviously, I want investors to look back and say, oh, I remember Rosica, look at what he did, you know, from, from where the company was and where it is today and, and how valuable it is today and, and the trajectory it's on today. I think, you know, how customers, I would want customers to think of it as, you know, that what they see is a much better company that is hopefully doing much more for them and, and, and much more, much more value to them. So they're, you know, they're voting in their dollars and what they're giving the company. And I would want the team members to, to, to think that, Hey, you know, look at, look at where the company's at culturally and, and organizationally who we are as an organization and a, and a, and a culture. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I just want to leave the company in a, in a much stronger position than I, than I inherited. And, and I think we're on the journey there where we're, we're a good way into that, but uh, we still have more work to do as a company. Do you feel like the company has a bandwidth to do, I don't know, something different, right? Cause again, we talked about fixing what was broken. That's including the balance sheet and the culture that's helping a, a SaaS transition actually happen. That's getting the cash flow right. I mean, is there, do you have initiatives to add, you know, other things into the tool bag, you know, that, that you could leverage your shareholder you know, through your, your sales force? I mean, it, it, maybe that's, maybe this is also getting into M&A, but do you feel like the company is, is now, you know, in a position where enough things are fixed that you could really step on the gas on another initiative that's maybe outside yeah. of what the, what the core is right now? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think I think our moves are going to be both in the core, adjacent to the core, and potentially, you know, uh, 
over to the side of, of, of what we're doing. I, I wouldn't say that we're going to go make automobiles um, or rocket ships next week. Um, but look, we, what we do is, is we, we're an innovator and we innovate around tools that are used for creating content, not just creating, but creating, managing, and distributing content. There's a lot of opportunity I see in the marketplace for our brand and, and for where our company can go. I would, you know, some of this, if you look at our investor day, it'd be too much for me to talk about in this podcast, but you know, we've publicized all the videos and, and, uh, and materials from our investor day. In that, we hint a lot and more than hint, some things we're very outright about that, you know, we, we talk a lot about where we're taking the company, where we see the opportunity. Now, we didn't obviously divulge at all in, in investor day. We have competitors and we need to, you know, obviously make sure that our competitors don't know exactly where we're going. But um, I'd say we have a lot of opportunity for the company, both in our wheelhouse and probably adjacent to the wheelhouse. But I, I, again, I don't, I don't think the company should be going to do something it doesn't know how to do. I think we'll, we'll, we'll stay in our lane, but I think our lane could be much wider than it is today. Got it. That makes sense. Uh, and I think there no conversation with a public CEO these days would be complete without mentioning the term ESG. Um, I think you guys are pretty well covered on the governance side, both from a, you know, a shareholder perspective and then like internal sense of what governance, but I'd love to know on the E and the S side, you know, how is that changing your view of the world? How's it changing the way you hire? What is it changing from, are you, you know, how, how are you evolving as your stakeholders maybe have different views of, of, or, or evolving views of, of, of what the world should look like? It's, it's a good question. So I think it, look, it starts with me. Um, I know our, I'll say if you didn't start with me, our board cares deeply about this subject and many members of our board spend a lot of time with us talking about this. I think as a company, one of the things that we haven't done well is that there's a lot of things we're doing in all in the E, the S and the G uh, as a company. And we're probably not very good and not been very good at making that really outwardly uh, visible to, to our customers and our stakeholders, including our investors. You're going to see us doing a lot better job on that in the, in the weeks and months ahead. Again, um, you know, we got to pick our priorities and do things, you know, in, in the proper way. But I think for us, you know, environmental subjects and, and social subjects have been very, very important. They're very dear to my heart personally, not just as CEO, but also as a, as a human being. And, and our industry cares deeply about it. I mean, we all talk about ESG from an investor standpoint, but our customer base, people in media, people who create content, they care a lot about the environment around and around social. Um, and so, is an area that, you know, around corporate social responsibility that we're focusing a lot on as a company. And uh, you'll see us doing more and more. First of all, you'll see us making more visible what we are doing, but also you'll see us doing more and more as we look forward in the next two to three years as a, as a company. I think they're, look, I think if you're going to be in, the, in any, if you're going to be a technology supplier in the corporate world today, this has to be a priority. You know, as, as corporate citizens, we have a role, we have a responsibility to do our part. But I think when you look at where our industry is and what they expect out of us and what they expect, you know, people they're going to buy from, people they're going to put their trust in, they expect certain things from, from a company like ours, uh, from how we invest and how we, you know, what we do as a company on, on these subjects, but also how we use our bully pulpit to help, you know, help for good. And so, you'll, you know, you, if you watch our social, you'll you see a bit of that from us, but you'll see more and more over time. But they're important. I think they're important, again, to investors. Um, you hear a lot of talk in the investor world about this, but... It's, it's crucially important to our customer and user base for sure. Sticking briefly on the, on the people side, um, as we wind down, I'm interested uh, in what you've learned about hiring over your career and getting the right people on the bus. Because I do think to some degree you inherited a situation where maybe not all the people on the bus were the right ones for the future. 
any lessons, you know, for especially for either someone who's a founder or, you know, just or anecdotes that you could provide investors about how, how they should evaluate CEOs and their hiring um, capacity? Yeah, it's a good question. I, look, hiring people and and motivating people is a big part of a CEO's job. Um, and so it's it's look, I think it's important that the way you're going to hire, I think the mistake people make often is that they hire people too close in their network. I mean, yeah, we, we've all got networks. and We know people that are in our network that we reach out to, but you have to really go wide and you've got to be willing to go outside your network or you're going to end up with the same result. You're going to end up with the same. They're, they're too close. And so one of the things I do is it's very important for us to reach really wide, that we source wide that we and we go very wide. One, because you're going to get the best potential talent. You're going to get the best potential type of thinking that, a, that an employee can be. But also, you know, DNI is an important subject for our company. If you don't source wide, you, you're, if you only source in your network and you're me, a middle-aged white guy, you're going to end up with a bunch of middle-aged white guys and you're, you know, way more than you're going to end up with people of color or potentially women, even though, though I do have a very strong network of women. But you know, I'm just saying in general, you've got to reach outside your comfort zone. You've got to reach outside your network and make sure you're sourcing very wide. I think that the more you do that, the better success you're going to have in, in the type of gaining the type of talent. You also have to be willing to under, I, I think for me, I'm very loyal and, and very committed to our team, but, but it also is a two-way street is that, you know, you, you've got to be clear that not everyone's right for every job. And, and, and even someone who is right for a job one day may not be the right person for that job two years from now. And so you've got to make sure that you're always looking without emotion as to what the requirements of that role is and whether that person is or isn't right for that role. It doesn't mean you get, they have to go out the door. Maybe it means they need to go do something else or take a different role that's more, more uh, attuned or aligned to what, what they can really succeed. Um, it, it's just important to make sure that, you know, again, there's a lot of great people, but it's making sure you've got great people that are great at what they do and, and, and that they can you know, get the successful outcome you're looking for in a, in a given role. And again, being as unemotional as you can to that is important. Uh, I have to apologize because I'm going to jump to a question that I just have to ask. And, yeah. it's, and I, it just struck my mind. So when I walk the floor of Avid Connect, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, of NAB, like after going to Avid Connect, I see whatever, 40 companies that look like they're doing the exact same thing, like very similar technologies. And I like, and, and, and when I think about that, I was like, this industry is so ripe for consolidation because there's so much redundant R&D and there's so many redundant sales forces. Like the entire industry could become more profitable if it just shrunk a little. Has, has that happened at all? And is it, on your, is it, is, is it likely to happen in, in, in anyone's lifetime, do you think? I've stopped predicting that because it's funny. I've been saying that since I was a young man entering this business. I remember going to a trade show thinking, this industry is crazy. Why are there so many vendors? There's 1,500 vendors in an industry of this size. And I always used to, if you asked me this 20 years ago, I would have told you, yes, this is it. We're on the cusp of a roll-up where it's going to consolidate. And every time there's a consolidation, 20 new players come out of the woodwork and replace the person that we can consolidate. And every one plus one of major players I've seen happen in the industry, they became 1.2 and somebody else came in and filled in the other 0.8. Um, and so it, it's, it's been interesting to watch it as an industry. I don't get it. I, I got, now there's been certain consolidations in certain parts of the industry because certain product segments or certain markets just couldn't handle more than two or three vendors. But generally our industry, you know, it had, I remember early in my career, I remember 
learning that there was about 1,500 vendors in in NAB, and I thought that was shocking. And I may have heard that in like the 1990s. Here we are in 2020, and there's 1,700 vendors in NAB. Um, You know, it's just, I don't know, it's it's more vendors, not less vendors. So it doesn't make sense. I can go on and on why I think that's the case. I think a lot of it has to do with innovation, the pace of innovation, the pace of change of our industry. Um, and, but also, it's a look, it's a sexy industry. For some reason, people love to get into the media space. It, it's very attractive and, and uh, you know, it's got a lot of um, benefit from a brand and a, and a you know, perceived value uh, standpoint. I mean, look, I grew up in the industry. I, I know this industry. I love this industry, too. But um, I think some people maybe get in for a lot of wrong reasons. They don't get in for how to make money. Thanks for that answer, because that is something I've just always wondered about this industry. Um, so we're going to close. I mean, this has been great and, and really jumped around a lot of subjects and covered a lot. Um, but I think this is this is my favorite question, and it's the one we always close with. So what do you think is the most misunderstood or underappreciated aspect of your business and, and company? Well, I have a different answer today than I probably would, would say three years ago. Um, I think today the thing that, though it's gotten better, I think perceptions are there. I think that if you really speak from an investor standpoint, I think that there's still a too much, a lot of people have gotten it, but there's still too many people that think of Avid as what we used to be, you know, this hardware company with a little bit of software. And, you know, I think that when people get a close look at who the company is today and, and where we're going, first of all, where, where we've come from and where we are today and where we're going, I think people realize this really is a, the, the opportunity of a, and the story of a, of a growing subscription and SaaS software business. And, and that's where our future is. And that's where we're, we're growing as an organization. That's why we're becoming, you know, as, as successful as we have been in the last year or two. Um, I think those are inter- important story. Yes. We're going to have some element of hardware and some of the old, business model, but that's becoming a smaller and smaller part of the business as the, the you know, the software uh, subscription and SaaS business grows as a, as a part of the company. And so I think people do, when I, when I first meet people who maybe haven't, don't know who Avid is, or they heard of Avid a while ago and they, they haven't looked closely, I think they, they, they misunderstand who we are. They misperceive who we are today and, and you know, kind of what, what we're doing today. Well, I will say, and this is a compliment to you, is that that day where you were named CEO, you know, we said, who in the world is Jeff Rossica, right? And and it just goes to show as an investor, you know, that you never know, you know, wh- where someone's talents lies, you know, where the, you know, whether they'll be a great CEO or not. And you, sh- you should really take the time to get to know somebody and how they think, because, you know, it's, it's some of the best CEOs ever have, have come from places where you wouldn't expect and so, um, uh, so congratulations on, on everything you've created and, and, and continue to build at Avid. And, uh, thank you so much for appearing. This was a great conversation and I'm, I'm really thrilled thanks. that we got to cover so much. Jeff, thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to listening to more of your, well, I won't listen to my own, but I listen to your other, your other podcasts that are coming. So great. Jeff, thanks so much. Thanks. See you. Bye. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. 
please feel free to email us at podcast at cobestreetcapital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.